Hi, I'm Nandika, a sophomore at Redmond High School. I'm a second year member and a co-chair of the YPC um, of FEMA Region 10. And this is my first podcast about disaster preparedness. Often people are unsure about how to effectively prepare for and stay safe during a disaster. Today, I'm here with a FEMA earthquake preparedness specialist, Dr. Hannah Ripinowitz, the earthquake program manager for FEMA Region 10, will be sharing some helpful tips and strategies about what to do and what not to do during an earthquake. So welcome, Dr. Rabinowitz, and thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I'm super excited to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course, yeah. Uh, What is your role in FEMA and how is your job related to emergency preparedness? Um, Yeah, so I'm the earthquake program manager for FEMA Region 10, as you mentioned. Um, So basically what this entails is a lot of working with uh, state and local partners, as well as scientists in the area who are looking at the earthquake, tsunami, and volcano hazards um, that affect our four states, um, helping to educate the public about Um, what to do during an earthquake, how to prepare for an earthquake, um, what building codes um, need to be in place to to make our communities safer uh, from earthquake hazards. Wow, that sounds really cool with like a lot of different things in your job. So um, how do you think that people should prepare for an earthquake? And if you could put just five things into your emergency preparedness kit, what would it be? Yeah, so I think that um, your the first part of your question really hits the nail on the head. So earthquakes are a hazard that can happen at any time. We don't have a way of predicting when an earthquake is actually going to happen. So it's really important to kind of have your plan in place. Um, go develop an emergency plan, go through it with your family, make sure everyone knows what they should do. Um, One thing uh, that can be important to include in that plan is having an out of state um, or at least out of kind of the area that would be impacted by an earthquake contact. So for example, uh, my mom lives in New Mexico, so um, she wouldn't be impacted by an earthquake that happened here in Seattle. Um, If if an earthquake like that happened, my husband and I could both uh, contact her and let let her know that we're safe. Um, in case we can't get a hold of each other, because during an earthquake, um, communication lines can be down. So really important to just have, think through those scenarios of what you would do um, during that uh, that event. Um, In terms of a preparedness kit or an emergency kit, um, I think that uh, uh, there are some things that are really obvious that you really need to make sure you have like food, water, um, making sure that you have um, enough to, uh, we say, be two weeks ready, um, enough to last you for a while in case um, in case there's a lot of damage to roads and infrastructure and it's hard to get those supplies um, in place. Um, so food, water, if you have any um, medications or for example, I... Um, wear contacts or glasses. So I need to make sure that I have um, stuff for that. So I can still see if, uh, if we have um, an earthquake or a major hazard happen. Um, Any important documents for your family, like uh, leases, um, any insurance documents. And um, another thing to think about is just warm clothes. Um, And then just kind of on a slightly lighter note, 
a hazard or an earthquake can be really, really stressful. Um, so just, it's always good to throw some, some things that are like comforting. So maybe some chocolate or, uh, games just to kind of take your mind off of things a little bit during a really stressful time. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I totally agree with that. I feel like there are often a lot of things that people leave out and I don't think about, like, I also wear contacts, so I totally relate to that. So like, um, thinking about like the earthquake in specific, what are the difference between P waves and S waves during an earthquake? And should people react differently to both of those? Um, yeah, so I uh, am very excited that you're asking about uh, these questions. So my background is actually uh, in earthquake science. So very excited <laughs> to talk about this part. Um, so uh, during an earthquake, uh, basically what happens is two uh, sides of a fault slip past each other and they release a lot of energy. Um, and how that energy is transported through the earth is through different uh, seismic waves. Um, so we're really lucky that this is the case because, um, and I think that you might ask about this later, so I won't dive into this, uh, this too much yet, but, um, so we have P waves and S waves, um, P waves move faster than S waves. They're what we call compressional waves. So they basically move, like you can imagine a slinky where it just kind of like goes back and forth in the same direction that the wave is moving. Um, and so those waves move faster, but they also don't cause as much shaking, um, whereas S waves move a bit slower, um, but they cause a lot more shaking and they just move in a slightly different way. So they move more like kind of um, like a like kind of back and forth uh, or perpendicular to the direction that uh, that the wave is uh, moving. Um, so. Well, that while these different waves move differently and they they can be really important scientifically and for different um, kind of alert strategies that we have, um, there's no way to really know um, just like in the heat of the moment as a person if you're not if you yourself are not a seismometer, um, it's really hard to know like which wave you're actually feeling at the time. Um, so we have P, P waves, we have S waves. We also have things called surface waves, which move even slower than S waves, but they cause even more shaking. Um, so something that you really need to think about is um, when you feel shaking, you want to drop to the ground, cover your head, try to get under a table if you can and hold on. Um, and this is really to protect yourself from things falling. Something to keep in mind with all of these different types of seismic waves is you might feel some shaking from one wave, but you just need to remember that um, there are different types of waves that move at different speeds. So you might be feeling more um, shaking later. You need to just try to stay sheltered. Um, for a little while until you're really sure that the shaking has stopped um, because you can get um, sh shaking for a while after the earthquake has actually stopped. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Like a lot of us don't know like the different types of waves and what's going on during an earthquake. So yeah, it's really useful to have that information. You kind of answered this a little bit, but what are some tips and strategies to follow during an earthquake, specifically during the shaking? Yeah. So um so definitely um, drop cover and hold on. You want to make sure um, 
not to walk around or uh, try to walk between rooms uh, once you start feeling that shaking, especially if there's really strong shaking. Um, that can really just knock you to the ground um, and you don't want to be knocked to the ground in a place where you're not sheltered um, because that's where a lot of injuries can happen. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like, yeah, it's very important to consider, especially during the shaking and like the heat of the moment. So um, what is a shake alert and like, how do they know the magnitude of an earthquake before you even feel the shaking to like, yeah. that? Yeah. So this uh, really relates to your question about what P and S waves are. So I mentioned that we are really lucky that we have these different types of waves. And one of the reasons that we're so lucky that that is the case is that when an earthquake happens, that P wave that's a lot faster, but does not cause very much shaking, that can be sensed by seismometers. So um, we have a network of seismometers all over the country, actually, but a pretty dense network, especially in uh, California, Washington, and Oregon, um, where these seismometers can pick up really quickly that a lot of them have felt this P wave and they can make a really, really fast estimate of um, how big the uh, earthquake was that caused that P wave. Um, and they use that information to very quickly send um, an alert <clears throat> or um, a warning out to the public in California, Oregon, or Washington, um, just in the area that would experience that shaking, just saying that, um, you might be feeling shaking in a few seconds, or um, it, you could even get up to a minute or in some cases, even more warning that shaking is coming. Um, and that's just because we're able to actually detect that signal very quickly um, before the S waves and those surface waves actually have time to make it all the way to you. Um, uh, where you feel that shaking. And so the amount of warning that you get is very dependent on how close you are to the earthquake, how big the earthquake was, and a lot of those types of things. Um, but it can be very helpful to give you a little bit of time to take those uh, sheltering actions. Um, one downside of the, these uh, very fast notifications is that um, they're trying to make these estimates of how big an earthquake uh, was with pretty limited information. They're using just a very, very small snippet of the seismic signal um, to make that estimate because they're trying to make it so fast in order to be able to get people an alert quickly enough for them to do something with it. Um, and because they're using such a small piece of the, um, the data to make that estimate, um, there can be cases where um, the magnitude is not quite correct. Um, and so it's very common to see um, an earthquake magnitude estimated and then um, the USGS or one of the geologic agencies um, might release kind of updates to that, um, that magnitude estimate as more data comes in and is able to be analyzed. Um, and so that's totally normal. It doesn't mean that anyone did anything wrong. It just means that uh, scientists are able to refine um, their estimates based on additional data. Oh, oh, yeah, I think it's amazing that there's like technology to be able to like predict that. And that would give us like a really big leg up, especially during an event of like a earthquake. So yeah, it's really cool. And thank you so much for explaining that. 
So how do you um, think we should prepare for the aftershocks of an earthquake after all the damage and like the shaking? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess I'll just start off here kind of explaining uh, what an aftershock is. Um, just in case some of your listeners might not um, <clears throat> might not know all of the lingo there. Um, so when we're talking about earthquakes, um, what we often think about is earthquake sequences. And so these are composed of four shocks. Um, and these are earthquakes that happen before the biggest earthquake in the sequence. And then we have the main shock, which is the biggest earthquake that happens. And then aftershocks, which are all the earthquakes that happen after the main shock, uh, which is the biggest earthquake. Um, and so one thing um, that you might kind of pick up on from that description is it's all relative to when the main shock happens. So there's, uh, in the heat of the moment, there's no way of really knowing um, whether the earthquake you just experienced was the main shock. Um, that's something that we know after the fact. Um, so um, one thing that you always want to keep in mind is even if you felt a lot of shaking, um, there could be a bigger earthquake that comes afterwards. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, but even if the earthquake that you felt was the main shock, it was the biggest earthquake in that particular earthquake sequence, um, you could still have a lot of earthquakes that follow. Um, and we expect generally that aftershocks will decrease dramatically over time. So the main shock will happen and it might um, trigger a lot more earthquakes very soon after that happens. And then those will trigger more afterwards, but that will die down over time. Um, but, but the thing to really keep in mind is that when you feel a significant earthquake, um, you should really be kind of on high alert at least for a while um, and expect that there could be additional earthquakes after the fact. Um, and keep in mind that just be, uh, for example, if um, if you had a bookshelf that didn't fall over during the earthquake that you just experienced, you should not assume that those same things will hold up uh, during a subsequent earthquake. You could have an earthquake that's stronger or you could have parts of your house that might have been damaged during the first earthquake um, that uh, that might fail during an aftershock. So it's important to just continue to follow all of those safety precautions uh, for any earthquake that you feel. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. I did not know that. And uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't really know that there could be aftershocks or things that happen after the earthquake. But once officials and we do confirm that there isn't any more aftershocks, what should someone do immediately after an earthquake? For example, like you mentioned earlier, should they contact their family, be inside, go outside, etc.? Yeah, so I will also highlight that an aftershock sequence can last for like years after an earthquake. So mm -hmm. there, so I wouldn't necessarily say that like the act, like you should definitely be like taking actions after the earthquake that you felt. You don't necessarily have to wait until all the aftershocks are done. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. But once you stop feeling shaking, um, you what you first want to do is just kind of like take. Uh, take stock of your surroundings. Make sure that if you get out from under that table that you're underneath, um, nothing's going to fall on you. So just take like kind of stock of your of your immediate surroundings and be as safe as possible. Um, one thing that is 
relevant, especially if uh, you live in a coastal area, is um, that if you're in a tsunami zone, once you feel that shaking stop, um, you need to get to higher ground. Um, it's really hard in the heat of the moment uh, to know whether an earthquake that you felt um, could trigger a tsunami or not. Um, so just as a precaution, it's if you're in a tsunami zone, you should get to higher ground um, just to be safe. Um, also, you obviously want to get a hold of your family make sure that they're safe. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that if there is a really major earthquake, it could impact um, uh, communication signals. So if everyone is trying to call their family, um, phone lines might get jammed. Sometimes texting can be an easier way to go. Um, but I mentioned that out-of-state contact. Um, one really important reason to have that is because if communications are jammed in your area, it can be easier to, like in my case, get that text message out to my mom in New Mexico as opposed to trying to text my family um, that's right here and also using those same signals. Uh, makes sense. I feel like, as you said, like in the heat of the moment, there's so many things going on. So it's yeah, yeah. very important to like know ahead of time and like take and plan for potential steps you would take afterwards. And as we were talking about, there are a lot of like misconceptions when it comes to earthquake preparedness. So what is like one tip or like, or what are a few incorrect assumptions or misunderstandings that people have about disasters in general? Yeah, so um, specifically with earthquakes, um, I think that's something that people don't necessarily always think about is the secondary hazards that can happen um, after an earthquake. So um, things like uh, that shaking can cause like downed power lines that um, that could like uh, initiate a fire and that can cause a lot of damage that's not necessarily related to the earthquake itself, but um, is kind of a secondary effect. Um, earthquakes can trigger landslides um, and tsunamis that, as I mentioned before, um, that can cause a lot of damage themselves. Um, so so there are some of these uh, kind of subsequent hazards that we need to still be keeping an eye out for when an earthquake happens. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is that if there's a major earthquake, it can damage um, utilities. So it might um, impact your access to electricity, gas, water. Um, so one thing that's really important is to just be prepared. Um, I mentioned having water in your emergency kit. Um, just be prepared in case uh, you don't have access to that uh, those utilities for a while. Um, and also just remember that Earthquakes can happen anywhere in the U.S., um, especially if living on the West Coast. Uh, we are in an area that has high earthquake hazard. Um, and so it's important to not forget that an earthquake can happen here, can impact you. And it's really easy to just uh, to just assume that it won't happen to me. Uh, but we really all need to try to be prepared for these hazards. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like a lot of times, like even people in my communities and myself just think it won't happen in this area. But obviously living in Washington and other parts of the West Coast, it is like um, very likely to happen. So it's important to be prepared. And um, if there's like one tip or fact that most people don't know about emergency preparedness or earthquakes, like what do you think it would be? 
Um, I think that's something that people assume is that their earth, their um, homeowners or their renters insurance is going to cover them during an earthquake. And actually, for the most part, that's not the case. Um, so most homeowners policies and renters insurance policies uh, do not cover ground movements, including earthquakes. Um, so you can talk to your insurance agent about um, about getting a separate insurance uh, policy for earthquakes. Um, and there are also other things, uh, which I won't get into too much, but <laughs> there are things that are uh, called parametric insurance policies that you can look into. Um, which can give just a quick payout to help you with the immediate needs during um, during a disaster if an earthquake happens. Um, so it's worth looking into these these things because um, I think that a lot of people just assume that uh, their insurance policy will help them out in those situations. I didn't know that. I don't know much about insurance, but <laughs> I didn't either. But consider yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for that tip. And if a person or loved one is in life-threatening danger, who do you think they should reach out to first? And if they're not able to get in touch with like a professional, what are some important, uh, not important, but uh, important medical response tips to know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think this is a really important question. Um, I think so during an earthquake, especially if it's a really big earthquake, um, there might be a lot of people that are calling on um, emergency medical help. Um, the roads might be damaged, which makes it hard for those professionals to get um, to get out to all of the different people who are in need. Um, so it is important to keep that in mind um, that it might take time before you do have access to that professional help. Um, one thing that you can try to do beforehand is to try to take trainings like CPR training, um, stop the bleed training. So just kind of some of those like basic um, emergency medical skills that could be helpful during a situation like that. Um, another thing that is really important is just getting to know your neighbors, uh, knowing if there's anyone living on your block who maybe has some medical experience uh, for some reason or another, um, that could be a resource, uh, during an event like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, really important to know. And yeah, I feel like oftentimes you just think that like a professional will help us, but that always, like, as you said, might not be the case. So it's important to have resources and talk to like, um, neighbors and everything. So if there's like one thing that you would just tell people to remember when facing a disaster, what would it be? Um, so exactly what uh, what you just said, actually. So <laughs> I think it's uh, it's really important to uh, to just be resourceful and know that you can be resourceful. So um, all of us have just gone through several years of being in kind of a disaster situation. We've all dealt with the pandemic. Um, we've had to completely upend and change our lives uh, because of this. We've seen people that we love impacted by that. Um, and I think it's just really important to remember that we do all have the capacity to be resourceful, um, especially if you have like experience going camping, for example, um, like, you know, that you can kind of readjust your expectations um, to cook for yourself, to, um, to kind of get by and 
different situations than what you're used to in your everyday life. So um, just remember that, uh, that you really, you have those skills and that ability to be flexible um, in these kinds of events. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that tip. And um, how, like you've mentioned this like previously, but how can our community help each other during and after an emergency, especially if basic amenities are destroyed with no water or power supply? Yeah. So uh, yeah, again, definitely um, be aware about the, about the fact that those utilities might be out the um, the ability to get that outside help might um, be limited. Um, uh, one thing you can think about is backup power. So emergency generators, solar chargers, for example, so you can try to keep your phone charged. Um, obviously food and water, which we've already mentioned, fla- having a flashlight um, just to be able to have that light. But I think that uh, kind of the the really important thing also to remember is during uh, during these kinds of events, you really want to make sure that you're taking care of your community and your community's taking care of you. So really neighbors helping neighbors. And I guess I have an example of just something that I thought was uh, like kind of uh, heartwarming that I uh, saw recently was that I participated in a Reddit AMA recently um, where we were talking about um, earthquake hazards in the Western US. Um, And someone uh, asked a question that was basically saying that they had already put together an emergency kit um and had their emergency plan in place but they had a couple of neighbors that were in their 70s and what should they do to make sure that those neighbors were um were safe and uh and were prepared and i think that that really just speaks to uh how important it is to really think about your whole community because uh during a disaster event you're really in it together yeah, yeah, I feel like that's definitely true. Like during a community, during a disaster, your community is like your first resource, and people you should definitely like get to know and plan, um, create a plan together in case of an emergency. And we've talked a lot about family members and community members and staying safe. But one topic that we didn't talk about was the safety of pets and other animals in the household. So can you share some like tips for ensuring the safety of pets and other anim- animals during an emergency? Yeah, so definitely important to remember not just your human family, but um, all the members of your family when you're putting together those emergency plans and emergency kits. Um, Obviously, make sure that you have pet food, extra water available for your pet. Um, You also want to make sure that your pet is microchipped um, and that you have pictures of yourself with your pet, um, just because um, you want to make sure that if uh, by some unfortunate chance your pet does get lost, uh, you have those resources available to uh, to kind of help find them, reunite with them, and kind of demonstrate uh, that they're actually your pet. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that um, oftentimes emergency shelters either will have limitations on bringing pets in or 
will have rules about making sure that you that they're leashed or that you have a crate for them. Um, it's it's also good to have up to date documentation of their vaccinations, and that can just really help with if you do have to find shelter or put your pet into um, like some sort of uh, boarding situation for a while. Um, that you're able to do to have all of the documentation that allows you to do that. That's really cool. I did not know you can microchip your pet. And yeah, that definitely seems helpful in a um, earthquake or disaster situation. So yeah, thanks for the tip. And thank you so much for sharing all these vital and crucial strategies. I learned so much and it was a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.